This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. We're celebrating International Women's Day as we talk to female leaders working across the board and from across the globe. So in this month's programme, we get the latest on the COVID-19 crisis more than a year on with a focus on Indigenous peoples. All that from Marie Hager, Associate Vice President at IFAD. Of course, we look into the main messages of International Women's Day. We talk to IFAD's lead gender specialist, Ndaya Belchika. Also, we hear from Judy Ling Wong. She's the founder of the Black Environment Network in the UK. Plus, news on the latest iteration of the world's biggest fund to help small-scale farmers adapt to climate change. I'm talking to climate finance specialist Lisa Leclerc. Then we see what's going on at the smallholder and agri-small-medium enterprise Finance and Investment Network, or SAFIN, with their lead Bettina Prato. Keeping with the theme, we're then off to Brazil to hear from a woman leading the way in agribusiness in the northern state of Bahia. Of course, there's also the next part of our mini-series where we talk to farmers of Afro-descent living in Ecuador, Colombia and Peru. They're all part of the Aqua Project. And this episode, we'll be talking to the dynamic force that is Colombia's Naibi Angulo. And don't forget, we have news from Nepal's farming communities dealing with COVID and climate change. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. The COVID-19 crisis has been with us for more than a year and counting. In fact, this was a major subject at the Indigenous Peoples Forum earlier in February. IFAD's Associate Vice President Marie Hager was there and she told us how that went. She also gave an update on how IFAD is building resilience for smallholder farmers in the face of the health crisis. But first, I asked her if the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine is having any serious impact on the situation in rural areas in developing countries. I'm afraid the answer to your question is no. People living in rural areas make up almost 80% of those in extreme poverty. It has been said that COVID-19 treats everybody equally. That is not true. That is nonsense. Poor people are always the hardest hit in a crisis. Rural communities and smallholder farmers are generally vulnerable under COVID due to, for example, poor health systems and disruption of production and markets. And within this group that at the outset is vulnerable, women and youth are particularly at risk. I could also add Indigenous people 
and persons with disabilities. Vaccines are, of course, fundamental in the fight against COVID-19. We don't know how fast the, the rollout will be anywhere around the world, but aid groups have warned that many people in low-income countries stand little chance of being vaccinated in 2021 due to overbuying by wealthier countries and uh, developers not sharing intellectual um, property rights. Of course, um, the World Health Organization is taking positive steps like uh, COVAX, an initiative to buy and deliver vaccines for the world's poorest people. But until full vaccination is a reality, rural communities will continue to suffer from loss of harvests, loss of market sales, loss of employment, and loss of remittances, the effects of which will linger long after the vaccine is rolled out. Marie, how how are IFAD's operations going in terms of building resilience for those communities that are being affected by COVID-19? I think it is right to say that our operations are going quite well. We are, of course, all concerned that the COVID-19 crisis will undo the progress the world has made in reducing poverty and hunger in recent years. Through the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility that we actually established immediately after the outbreak of COVID-19, we have been mobilizing funds to support small-scale farmers and rural producers to continue to grow and sell food despite COVID-19 restrictions in in movement and trade. We are doing this by providing access to agricultural inputs like seeds and fertilizers. We are also providing small but important liquidity. Uh, We have provided information, for example, about markets, and uh, we have helped with digital solutions. So you can say the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility mitigates the immediate effects of the pandemic, but also helps establish resilience moving forward. As of uh, December, we had uh, mobilized the 90 million um, US dollar for the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility, and we had financed 53 projects amounting to 37 million, through uh, which we expect to reach 1.6 million beneficiaries. Um, but in addition to this particular facility, we have also repurposed funds within existing projects. So far, we have repurposed around 140 million US dollar across 54 projects in 32 countries. We have also provided policy and analytical support to almost 40 countries, helping governments conduct rapid assessments of COVID-19 impact in the rural sector, and, of course, most importantly, developing government response plans to the challenges. Earlier this month, IFAD hosted the 10th anniversary edition of the Indigenous Peoples Forum, How big an issue is COVID for Indigenous peoples and what's IFAD doing to work with them in particular? Through the Indigenous Peoples Forum, IFAD has established strong partnerships with Indigenous peoples' organisations, the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues and other like-minded organisations that support Indigenous peoples. The theme of the most recent edition was Indigenous Peoples' Food Systems, Resilience at the time of COVID-19. 
The forum included a summary of outcomes from a number of recent regional consultations held in Africa, in Asia, Latin America and the Caribbean and the Pacific. And we heard a hearty discussion on how the views of indigenous peoples can be heard better and louder at the country and regional levels in developing the future more resilient food system that the world so desperately needs. We um, will see a food system summit later in the year initiated uh, by the Secretary General of the UN. The uh, Indigenous Peoples Forum stressed that the uh, summit will not be successful unless we take the views and contributions of Indigenous peoples fully into account. And IFAD is fully aligned with that position. You also asked specifically about EFAD's work with indigenous peoples. 30% of EFAD's ongoing projects support indigenous peoples' communities. And since 2007, EFAD has uh, administered grants through the Indigenous Peoples Assistance Facility for projects that strengthen culture, identity, traditional knowledge, natural resources, intellectual property, and human rights. So far, 159 projects have been financed in more than 45 countries. Out of these projects, uh, half of the 120,000 beneficiaries were women. In other words, EFAD's partnership with uh, Indigenous Peoples' groups is very important uh, for us and we believe also for the indigenous peoples themselves. That was Marie Hager, and Marie will be back to talk to us in just a bit to give us her take on International Women's Day. But before that, we have news from IFAD's lead technical specialist on gender, Ndaya Belchika, on that very same subject. This is Farms Food Future. International Women's Day on March 8th is a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women. The day marks a call to action for accelerating women's equality. International Women's Day, or IWD, has occurred for well over a century, with the first IWD gathering in 1911, supported by over a million people. Today, IWD belongs everywhere. Ndaya Belchika is IFAD's lead on gender and social inclusion. I asked her, how have women in rural communities in developing countries been affected by the challenges of the past year? So the past year has been dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic, with more than 84 millions of people infected and 1.8 million of deaths. So the pandemic has endangered the life and the livelihoods of millions of people with disruptions in mobility, as well as disruption in agri-food supply chain from production to access and markets. So when we look at the impact broadly, uh, when you say everyone is being affected by the loss of income, decline in remittances, impact in consumptions, have suffered from the suspension of classes, as well as the saturation in health systems that has translated into less services for non-commutable diseases. But we also know that women have some specific vulnerabilities and therefore they suffer the most. 
For instance, with the school closures and the elderly care, women are more required to take care of them. Women are also more exposed to the infection due to a larger share of women in the health and service sectors, as well as the expected responsibility to take care of the, of the sick. Also, women face a higher likelihood of domestic violence during home confinement. And then some of the service sectors have been most affected. That's where we have the higher concentrations of female employment. So overall, women and girls have been more affected in rural communities than the other vulnerable groups due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which has really dominated 2020. Taking another look at the theme of this year's International Women's Day more literally, how do you, Ndaya Belchika, choose to challenge and what would you like to see the rest of us choose to challenge in the coming year? This year has been really a reflection year for many. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the COVID-19 is one event um, that has really brought some stark vulnerabilities. Black Lives Matters has been another one. Um, the election, the U.S. election has been another one, as well as um, the what we saw with the invasion of the U.S. state capitol. So all of that has led me to actually reflect and then try to understand what is it that I can do to actually create a change. And what I have decided to do, I said that, you know, I do have a personal responsibility to continue to challenge the persistent prejudice and discrimination against women and girls. And I would invite everyone to do the same because we cannot take anything for granted as we have seen um, over the past year. Everything should be treasured. All of the gains that we've made should be capitalized on and then we should continue to continue to push for gender equality and then for the, for the rights of women. As mentioned, the theme of this year's IWD is Choose to Challenge. I asked Ndaya, with all this in mind, how can we best take action for equality? Change um, is not about big headlines moment um, or legal victories or international agreement. Um, change can happen with what we do on an everyday basis. It is the way we talk, the way we think, as well as the way we act every day that can create a ripple effect that can benefit everyone. So there are small things that can be done on a day-to-day -day basis to actually promote equality. One, uh, and I'll just mention a few. The first one would be to share the care. Women usually are known to work tirelessly and they tend to be responsible for many of the household chores. So we can all show we care by committing to evenly share household shore. The second thing that can be done is to stand up against sexism and harassment. We can do that by start to call out any inappropriate behavior in a safe and respectful manner. And then to also learn the fact to challenge any things that may not be supported by facts. The third thing that can be done is to teach girls their worth, is to remind girls in our lives that they are strong, capable, and deserving of the same respect as boys. The fourth thing that we can do is to actually 
show and challenge what it means to be a man and to promote healthy images of masculinities. So for instance, in our friendships or relationship, or even within our family, to support expression of masculinity that involve vulnerability, sensitivity, caretaking, and other non-traditional uh, roles for men. And then lastly, is to exercise our political rights. Uh, we know that women continues to remain underrepresented at the highest political positions. As in 2020, women only held about 25% of seats in national parliaments and accounts for less than 77% of world's leader. So the things that we can do is to be informed, to vote, and then once we have qualified women in the positions to of course support those women. So those are just examples on how we can in our day-to-day -day life promote equality. Thanks to Undaya Belchika. Remember the theme of this year's IWD is a challenged world is an alert world. We can choose to challenge and call out gender bias and inequality. We can choose to seek out and celebrate women's achievements. Collectively, we can all help create an inclusive world. From challenge comes change. So let's all choose to challenge. Please check out hashtag choose to challenge. And as promised, we're now going back to IFAD's AVP, Marie Hager. I asked her in honour of International Women's Day how she was choosing to challenge. Well, <laughs> this is a question I love to get. I um, have been told I am challenging and demanding, but um, I try to be friendly about it. This year's theme for International uh, Women's Day is, in my view, very appropriate. I do believe that a challenged world is an alert world, uh, and it is up to each and every one of us to challenge our thoughts and actions, as well as those of others. Gender equality is a fundamental human right, a building block for social justice and an economic necessity. Science tells us that empowering women and girls spurs productivity and economic growth. And I have myself seen this in my own country, in, in Norway. Oil and gas have been tremendously important for that country. But without full integration of women in the workforce, and I will also say in politics, the country's economy had not been what it is today. Throughout my career, I can honestly say that I have championed conversations on women's empowerment, and I have systematically given women, younger women, opportunities in teams I have had the privilege to establish. I choose to challenge when I see bias or discrimination, and also when I see opportunities for us, us as a global society and as, as women, to step up and support our sisters in areas where they are most vulnerable. And some of us are, are privileged not to experience uh, discrimination in our daily lives. It's our damn duty to step up for those who are not in the same privileged uh, position. And I would like to challenge us all to take a stand and even more so to take 
action. So, yes, maybe I am challenging. Thanks to our fantastically challenging in all the right ways, Marie Hager. Coming up, we have another incredible female leader who chooses to challenge, this time from the Black Environment Network. You're listening to Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson. Judy Ling Wong is the honorary president and founder of the Black Environment Network in the UK, which started over 30 years ago. She's a pioneer in the field of ethnic participation in the built and natural environment, and she's a major voice on policy towards social inclusion. With climate change a major factor for small-scale farmers in developing countries, I asked her how much we can view climate change impacts as a race issue. For me, at the heart of climate change is the failure to feel deeply enough both about what happens to people and about nature so that we are able to stop our damage to people or nature to the extent that it's resulting in climate change. It is a relational failure that is so both moral and spiritual. You know, in a, in a world of plenty, we refuse to share and we exploit. It may be a vast simplification, but the impact of international race relationships can be seen as being expressed through the actions of the global North in relationship to the global South. We need to scrutinize these actions across a whole spectrum, including what is happening to smallholders, small farmers, and so on, where the colonialism and the racism is quite beyond internal national racism, because there are actions that are expressing the commitment, the complete dismissal of what happens to whole countries of people of color. And I want to talk about Black Lives Matter because you know, very interestingly, there are historical moments of awakening, and we're living through one of these vital moments. That is an opportunity for change. The social witnessing of the death of George Floyd is such a moment, has sent a wave of emotions through the world and created a kind of tipping point for the world to begin to notice and put to the top of the agenda issues of diversity, and equality. And when we think like that, themes like food security, small farmers and their livelihoods need to rise up the agenda. One thing that occurs to me very much in this context is about fairness and about looking at systems, frameworks and trade relationships. You know, sometimes we think that these are sort of distant things for us, but even within the UK, you know, I can remember a time when the small farmers in this country were being exploited by the supermarkets. They were pushing the price of milk so low that I remember one morning on the newspaper on the front page was a picture of a small farmer pouring his milk into the ground, saying, I cannot sell this for the price that I put into producing it. It is pointless to sell anything. I cannot sell this. And he was weeping. And then there's the issue of this image of cheap food. Why are we as a rich country in the UK constantly pushing for cheap food that impacts both the producers in this country and the producers across the world? So the matter of pricing food 
of paying people enough in order that they can buy food at a level at which farmers can actually live on and have an acceptable quality of life in the 21st century. Judy, you live in a rural area in North Wales, I understand. From your experience living in, in a in a community such as that, are there lessons that you see being learnt there which could translate to what needs to be done for smallholder farmers in developing countries as well, do you think? Absolutely. You know, we should do much more of this identifying with each other. You will notice if you really look that some of the richest nations in the world, like the USA, the poverty there is amazing. And poor people all over the world in both rich and developing countries should come together among common issues. When I lived in North Wales, I'm actually living in London now, but when I lived in North Wales, I had friends who were small farmers and so on. And it is not just money and all that. The other thing that was amazing is these people love the land. They love the animals. The smallholders are the salt of the earth in a cultural way of life. Now, these ways of life, they're thoroughly possible in a rich world like we have. As I said, in a world of plenty, the tragedy is that we refuse to share. We must make financing available to allow smallholders to get the things they need when times are hard, when the weather is against them and so on, to see them through their difficulties and to make their contribution. I'm told that across the world, although we talk about smallholders and so on, the amount of contribution of the smallholders, they're still producing something like 80% of the food to feed most of our people. They are important. We need to know this, notice this, and construct systems that really raise them up and allow things to be viable. Thanks to Judy Ling Wong, founder and honorary president of the Black Environment Network in the UK. Coming up, Lisa Leclerc tells us how she's put the plus into the ASAP. Find out more in a moment. ASAP Plus is the evolution of IFAD's Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture program, which was launched all the way back in 2012. It quickly became the world's largest fund for small-scale farmers in developing countries to help them adapt to the impacts of climate change. ASAP Plus builds on IFAD's decades of expertise on investing in rural communities and builds on the successes and lessons learnt from the first two phases of ASAP as a springboard to achieve deeper impacts. As a global climate change programme, ASAP Plus will focus on addressing the climate change drivers of growing food insecurity. Lisa Leclerc is the lead technical specialist and the mastermind behind this programme. She told me more. In ASAP Plus, compared to the previous rounds, we're focusing a lot more on pockets of food insecurity. And this is because in the last three or four years, unfortunately, the positive trends in food security have been decreasing. And a lot of this uh, reversal in trend is largely due to climate change drivers, things like pests, droughts, floods, and concentrated in lower income countries. We've also increased the ambition in terms of the size of ASAP Plus, and so we'll be doing more of the good stuff that we were doing in ASAP Plus. 
And the key uh, theme, I would say, to achieving this is through greater inclusiveness. So we'll be working in more countries, more countries in fragile contexts, uh, because, as I mentioned, the food insecurity is a focus. Uh, countries like Yemen that are being devastated by not only conflicts, but these are being compounded by things like desert locusts, droughts, and floods. Also in the governance structure, we'll have more of a voice for people who are on the ground, organizations that are on the ground in at our, our advisory committee that's set up to oversee the, the, the operations and the technical qualities of the fund. Uh, the, the third area is mitigation to, of greenhouse gases. So ASAP-1 was very focused on adaptation to the impact of the impacts of climate change, and this is still the case. But we have a lot of evidence from previous work that mitigation has a number of important development benefits. So things like renewable energy, agroforestry. Uh, we know, for example, that in projects already operated in ASAP-1, we've managed to do things like re reduce greenhouse gases by 16% of the targets that countries like Niger have set, or in Burkina Faso, 10% of greenhouse gas reductions based on their targets. Um, and all of this creates things like better incomes and increased production. Uh, the next area is social inclusion. Uh, while this was important for ASAP-1, it's a much stronger theme in ASAP+. Plus. So, for example, we know that a lot of smallholder households are um, led by women. So about 50% of smallholder households uh, in these communities are women-led, and they often don't have access to things like technologies and resources. And so we'll focus a lot more on uh, these issues of, of, of equality and, and equity of access to climate financing. So, looking to the future, what are the overall goals for ASAP Plus? Well, as I mentioned, ultimately it's to address these climate change drivers of growing food insecurity, so reversing those trends. And more specifically, we have targets of reaching 10 million persons, uh, 4.3 hectares of land under improved climate resilient practices, and approximately 130 million tonnes of greenhouse gas reductions. Impressive. So what is the key message Lisa wants to send out to prospective donors? I think the first and really critical one is that we, we know that only approximately 1.7% of global climate finance flows are being directed towards small-scale producers. Given the importance of uh, climate change, of gender, of food security, of green jobs for the sustainable development goals, it's clear that the increases in climate finance uh, have to also be directed towards addressing some of these imbalances. So we hope to have a little bit of an influence in terms of aggregating some of these increases in, in climate finance flows towards those who most need it. Um, the second one is that we have a track record. You know, we're on the field, we're in the ground, we're achieving lots of really good results with ASAP-1. Uh, we're already at about 6 million people that have been uh, um, benefiting from ASAP-1, and we're well on our way to achieve it, achieving and even exceeding a lot of these targets. And we're on the ground. We have a, we have a lot of experience and existing partnerships and networks uh, with these small-scale producers and the value chains that they work in. Um, so we're both well-positioned as a financial institution to direct these climate finance flows as a, and as a UN agency to address the development benefits that come with addressing climate change. Thanks to Lisa Leclerc. Coming up, news from the Smallholder and Agri SME Finance and Investment Network and what they've been up to recently to close the finance gap for small and medium agro-business. The Smallholder and Agri SME Finance and Investment Network, or SAFIN, 
brings together partners that are committed to scale up access to financial services for small and medium-sized agricultural businesses in developing countries or agri-SMEs. It brings together financial institutions, philanthropic foundations, social lenders, technical assistance providers, farmers' organisations and development finance groups from different vantage points with different tools and entry points, they work to bridge the investment gap in agriculture and food systems by financially empowering agri-SME and smallholder investors. I spoke to the founder of Safin, Bettina Prato. All around the world, Brian, small and medium enterprises or, or SMEs very often do the lion's share of producing, storing, you know, processing, packaging, getting food to our tables. For example, uh, most of the food that is sourced in Africa for, for consumption locally comes via uh, SMEs. And despite their importance in food systems, uh, agri-SMEs very often struggle to access finance. And by that, I mean you know, working capital, but also insurance, long-term investment capital, trade finance, the whole set. And this really hampers their capacity to operate and, and to grow their business, but also their capacity to stay afloat when shocks hit. You know, we've seen a lot of this uh, this past year with many thousands of small companies taking a, a severe hit with, uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So there are many reasons for this finance gap for agri-SMEs and particularly why uh, mainstream financial institutions like commercial banks are often hesitant to um, take them on as clients. And this is especially the case when we're talking about new companies, you know, smaller companies, companies that are managed by young people or women entrepreneurs, because they have innovative business models, you know, the kind that we really need to transform food systems today. And so to address this gap in, in a comprehensive way, what, what we need, what the world needs really is, is better functioning and more inclusive ecosystems in agri-SME finance. And by ecosystem, I mean that we need much greater mutual understanding, coordination, collaboration across the full spectrum of financial institutions that support agri-SMEs or have a capacity to serve them. And also between them and uh, technical assistance providers and also with agri-SMEs themselves. So this is where staffing comes in and why it is needed. It's the only global platform where all of these institutions come together as partners to improve their mutual understanding, their coordination, their collaboration. Bettina, you, you touched upon there one of the, the major challenges in, in the sector being the, the COVID-19 crisis in, in the past year. What, what, how do these challenges, how have you seen these challenges manifest themselves in the past year for this sector? First of all, Safin um, was, was established in 2018 and it had uh, a pilot phase that ran from 2018 to 2020. So for us, last year was really a special year. It was the, the, the year when basically we had to accelerate our efforts to wrap up uh, what we had started uh, with a pilot, but also to reflect on what we had learned and also to chart uh, our future, what we call Safin 2.0, which is a phase that we just started um, this uh, this year. And doing all of this under the pandemic, uh, I, I, I cannot lie, I mean, it was, it was really tough. Huh? I'd say it was tough, especially in three ways. 
first we had to figure out what was happening around COVID-19. You know, there was um, a problem of filling an information gap and filling it fast. Um, you know, we had to, to understand how it was impacting the industry, how it was impacting the staffing partners and, and how we could support them. You know, so all of these um, actors that are part of the network, especially those that operate uh, on the ground, they went into pandemic response mode in, in the spring. So they had to reassess financial needs, you know, to repurpose some of their activities, um, to absorb new costs to renegotiate loans, you know, to face uh, losses, defaults, et cetera. And at times like those, you know, the value of a global network can seem quite abstract, and right? let's, let's be honest. Uh, but for us, it was an opportunity to test our value proposition. So we worked really hard to collect useful information and also to get partners to share what they were observing in real time and what they were doing as, as a response. And, and this was really well, well um, received over, over the course of the past six months. The second uh, challenge we, we faced um, as, as a network in, in uh, relation to the pandemic was that we had to adapt our business model um, as we had to rely much more on our partners in the field rather than our team that was basically grounded in, in Rome for all activities at, at the country level. And that was particularly challenging for um, our signature product, if you will, which is something we call the Safin Investment Prospectus. Uh, essentially, this is about analyzing where are the high potential investment opportunities and how to design financial solutions for agri-SMEs around these opportunities in specific countries. Uh, we do this um, typically through highly participatory processes, and we provide a lot of support from the team here in Rome. In 2020, we had these processes underway in uh, Nigeria, Colombia, and India, and we were also doing some prep work in, in Sahel. And all of these processes were affected by the pandemic, uh, you know, because of travel restrictions, because needs changed, um, and we couldn't be there to support the process on the ground. This was not easy to, to manage. Um, it was actually quite hard at times, but it really pushed us to, to shift to a more partner-led model uh, that is more appropriate to a network like ours. And we're really keen on taking that into this new phase now. Um, the, third, the third area, I think, uh, the third area challenge, um, I think we, it, is that we had to really maintain a sense of, of community within the network without being able to meet in person. We also had to design the new face without meeting in person. Thanks to Bettina Prato of Safi, and you can find out more by going to their website, safinnetwork, that's one word, dot org. You can also find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website, www.ifad.org. And you can also find out more podcasts at the same address, forward slash podcasts. Please go to ifad.org forward slash podcasts to hear our other podcasts. In episode two, news on climate change from across the world. In episode seven, we focused on nutrition. And in episode 11, some great reports from across South America. All that and lots more in Farms Food Future. But back to this edition and coming up we have more news from women leaders from the Aqua Project in South America. You're listening to Farms Food Future. 
The Afro-Descendant Cultural Assets Foundation, or ACWA, works with IFAD developing and supporting projects in Latin America. Our reporter, Rosie Gonzalez, talked to nutrition expert Nayibe Angulo about the importance of our food systems. Nayibe Angulo is a home chef from Buenaventura in Colombia. She focuses on protecting natural resources and recovering native seeds and traditional recipes from her area. She says that in order to do this, respect for our environment is essential. I asked Nayib about solutions that could help put an end to food insecurity in her community. Sustainable farming is a very positive production system because it allows us to grow our own produce in a more organic, organized and responsible way. This helps to empower the community and get people planting and producing for their own well-being. They want to be healthy, so they plant what they're going to eat, and that in turn helps to empower territory as well as ourselves by defending our own nutrition. When we demand organic products for the table, the farmer continues in this direction and moves away from large-scale production towards quality production. People frequently abandon the countryside because the process of growing products on the farm is slow and they have to look for other resources and inputs in order to support their families. They abandon the fundamental activity of producing their own food, sometimes having to go to other places to look for jobs, and they lose that food security. So, I think that in rural areas, the presence of institutions is very important, but that's only part of the solution. What's really needed is an integral support for our communities to boost food security and put an end to our dependence on supermarkets and other commercial sources. Our aim is to become self-sufficient and sustainable. Due to our present way of life, we do not take so much care about what we feed ourselves or our children. We want to fill their stomachs with anything to stop them being hungry, but what we feed them is not necessarily nutritious. This is sometimes because we do not have time to prepare a good meal, to go looking for healthy food. So for the sake of convenience, I give my family what I find first. And that's wrong because you are what you eat. If you eat poorly, you will trigger health problems later on. And if you eat well, then you will be healthier, as long as you also do sport and those other things that we know are also essential. In rural areas, we are fortunate to have the opportunity to consume some local organic products. Others we have to buy because we do not grow them here. But that reduces the intake of chemicals in food in the rural areas of Buenaventura. And hopefully in the future we will not have to depend on what a supermarket sells, but rather totally depend on what we produce in the field. I think that one must stop to assess what is truly important. I can work a lot, I can have a lot of money, but if I am not in good health, I will not be able to take advantage of the fruits of my labours. So I encourage you to stop and think and consume more organic produce. Today, agriculture is making its mark on towns and cities. Farmers are displaying their produce, there are marketplaces, there are markets like Kume that allow people to access this healthy, organic, rural produce. I urge you to consume more of these products, thinking about the health of your children. 
That is the true quality of life that we must seek, that our families enjoy good health. Thank you, Rosie, for that report. That was Naibo Angulo from Colombia in part two of our mini-series, Aqua Women Leaders. Check out Farms Food Future episode 14 to hear more from Naibe about the Aqua Kume initiative to help farmers better sell their organic products. Coming up, we have more news from South America. This time, it's Brazil. Cooper Cook is a large cooperative in the small town of Wawa. You'll find that in Brazil's northern state of Bahia. The cooperative and the city lie in the heart of the semi-arid region known as the Certeo. Here, life is hard. Rain was always scarce and now, due to climate change, is also unpredictable. Water to grow crops and feed animals is a precious and very limited commodity and many people choose to migrate to the wealthy southern states of Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo. But those who stay have developed a strong sense of resilience and willful determination. This is the case of the 270 members of Cooper Cook, of which 70% are women. This is also the case with Denise Cardozo, the president of the cooperative. 31 years old, she has a lot of experience in family farming organizations, as she's been linked to the cooperative since she was a child. As we celebrate International Women's Day on March 8th, our reporter Juan Ignacio Carasbal asked her about the cooperative, about the challenges rural women like her face in their daily life, and about what the International Women's Day motto of this year, Women in Leadership, what it means for her. The first thing I would like you to do is to introduce yourself to our audience. Hello, Juan. Hello, everyone who's listening. I am Denise Cardoso. I am the president of Copercook, and this is my second term. Tell us a bit about Copercook and what it does. How does it work? Who are its members? We created Copercook in 2004, but way before that, there was work being done in the communities. Then we decided to create Copercook, already thinking that we wanted to market and sell the product that were made by the people in the communities. Today, there are 262 of us, and it's a pretty important number in a region like ours. Copper Cookie is way more than a cooperative. We work towards social transformation. To us, Copper Cookie was a way so that people could get social education, so that they could have access to public policies. The ProSemiarid project is a partnership between IFAD and the government of Bahia. What was the role of IFAD in the growth of Copercook? This partnership has been going on for years now, and we're currently reaping good results from it. Great results, really. Before, we actually had to put the brake on our sales, because if we made a big sale, we wouldn't be able to deliver the product in time. We had a very limited structure. Then IFAD decided to help us with the project to develop the agro-industry here. Through the ProSemiArid project, IFAD has been bringing technical support straight into the communities. Then we at Coppercook understood that we could do everything, from organizing the production and bringing technical advice to the producers to commercializing the products. 
This relationship between social work, the inclusion of women, and the inclusion of young people has been a very important result here from us, from this partnership between IFAD and the state government. The great majority of members of the cooperative are women. When we created Copper Cook, most of the members in the community organizations were women. Their empowerment really came from the new income generation. Of course, all the social work was important so that women would participate. But their permanence in the cooperative and in the movement was due to the generation of income, which allows them to have more power of decision in the family. Their husband can say, but I'm the one who brings food to our house. The women can say that they also bring some part of it now. Today, 70% of us at Copper Cook are women. Despite that, after almost 10 years, I am the first female elected president. Did you have, as a woman, to face special challenges because of the fact that you are a woman? For a young black woman from a rural community to be president of a cooperative, that's not a silly thing, that's not a small thing. But the good thing is that, because of the social education that we have, I never let myself be discouraged by some of the prejudice or some of the displays of sexism that I saw happening during my time here. The UN's motto for the International Day of Women this year is Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. What does that mean to you? It is a strong motto that strengthens us. I believe that we women have a certain tranquility in dealing with some things. So understanding that women are heard, that they are part of the process, is something very positive. More and more, women need to occupy some spaces, not by taking these spaces to themselves, but by making sure the process is more egalitarian, so that we're not so scared to show ourselves simply because we're women. I think this process and the UN talking about it, it strengthens our ideals and what we fight for here with cooperativism in Bahia and in Brazil. Do you think this process of women empowerment, despite difficulties, is going forward in any case, or can it experience setbacks? Well, I think the impact is now clearly very big. We had public policy cuts, and the first policies that were affected were those for women. We realize how fragile female representation still is in society in general, whether in politics or in other organizations. But I do believe, I am always an optimist, so I do believe that we will always continue to progress, yes, even if a little more slowly, even if we're walking more slowly. Imagine you're talking to a woman who is doubting whether she should join a cooperative or not. What would you say to convince her to get involved? We cannot be afraid. And how can we not be afraid since we are born with fear? Education is what makes people less afraid. So if you have access to information, go deeper and deeper. When we think we are small, we have to get together, because that way we become big. That's what we do at Copper Cook. 
We got together because we thought we were too small, and together we became big and organized. That was the process of what we did here. We made possible what a lot of people thought was not. Thanks to Juan Ignacio for that report from Brazil. Coming up next, we head over to Nepal for news on how farmers are dealing with climate impacts plus the impact of the pandemic. This is Farms Food Future. Nepal was the first country in Southeast Asia to record a case of COVID-19 back in early January last year. The pandemic led to travel bans and a countrywide lockdown. These have affected the agriculture sector and reduced remittances from abroad, which is the main source of income for rural populations in Nepal. To find out how IFAD responded to this new challenge, our reporter Irshad Khan spoke with Tariq Koteb, IFAD country director for Nepal and Sri Lanka. He explained that Nepal's agricultural sector contributes 29% of its GDP and 91% of the Nepalese population lives in rural areas with high poverty rates. The main challenges for agriculture and rural development remain poverty, chronic malnutrition, high youth migration rates. There is an urgent need to adopt cost-effective technological solutions for increased production and better marketing. And Tarek said we cannot overlook the need to establish resilience to climate shocks and the need to address a number of crucial social inclusion issues. Over to Tarek to look at how we're moving forward. IFAD now aims to build on recent developments made by the government of Nepal through expansion of road networks and communications coverage in remote areas, expansion of banking services and access to finance, and the transformation of agriculture from home consumer to market producer. We are currently supporting Nepal through three strategic pillars, diversification of rural incomes and stimulation of employment, resilience and adaptation to climate change, and the development of inclusive rural institutions. These are fully in line with government policy and the development agenda of the United Nations and development partners as well. This is also translated to the support of four ongoing projects with an IFAD total fund of $182 million with an outreach of about 1 million beneficiaries. We particularly focus on value chain development, provision of quality inputs for agriculture, climate change adaptation and enterprise development, including the use of remittances in rural development as remittances to Nepal were estimated at 28% of the GDP, with 70% going to consumption. How was IFAD's portfolio affected by COVID-19? The economic growth has slowed and inflation has increased. The COVID crisis now suggested that 31% of people living between $1.9 and $3.2 a day face significant risks of falling into extreme poverty. The crisis has significant impact on remittances, both in the short term, as many migrants have already returned home, and in the medium term, with a far fewer jobs in overseas employment, such as the petroleum sector in the Gulf Cooperation countries. 
In May 2020, the Foreign Employment Board of Nepal estimated that around 400,000 migrant workers would return to Nepal on a long-term basis from the Gulf countries and Malaysia. In this context, agriculture is increasingly important for rural economic recovery, not only for food security, but as an economic engine capable of absorbing the return of labor, especially given the expected slowdown in the service sector. Keep in mind that the large number of migrant workers returning from overseas bring skills and resources with them while also need to find paid work to replace lost remittance income for their families. Having seen how IFA normally operates in Nepal and the challenges that COVID has brought to the portfolio, could you tell us how IFAD is adapting its support to the government of Nepal to respond to the impact of COVID-19? IFAD has been one of the world's fastest crisis-responsive financial institutions. We established the Rural Poor Stimulus Fund to immediately enable expanded financial and other digital services, such as agricultural market prices and trade information, technical and production advice, supplier offered inputs and other service providers to beneficiaries of ongoing projects, as well as the wider farmer client base of the Agricultural Development Bank of Nepal. The fund's target groups will be smallholder producers, including landowners and landless as well, and workers in involved selected supply chains with targeted beneficiaries of around 50% women and 30% youth. There has been a strong demand from returning migrants for reintegration into their rural communities. IFAD's Rural Enterprises and Remittances Project supported the establishment of migration returnee centers and migration integration desks in states one and two. These include many potential returnee services to access credible economic opportunities, for example, in uh, profitable supply chains as skilled workers or in setting up their own skills-based micro-enterprises and to access training, business skills, and links with banks and other financial service providers. If that also will support the establishment of a clear process to channel returnees along pathways linked to confirmed economic opportunities and the associated services. In addition, the agricultural sector development program has increased its effectiveness in areas where in-person assistance was impossible. It was substituted by a radio program which transmits two episodes per week, which made the program reach 15,000 farmers at once. Lastly, our supported project on the adaptation of smallholders in hilly areas has created farmer field schools on permaculture which makes farmers even more resilient to external shocks. Thanks to Tarek and our reporter, Irshad Khan. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, our reporters, Rosie Gonzalez, Margaret Goring, Juan Ignacio Carasbel, Irshad Khan, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. 
You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. I'll be back at the end of March with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson and the team here at IFAD, Thanks for listening.